Acts chapter 2 is where we're at today. And for context's sake, we're going to look at verses 5 through 41 today. But for context's sake, I want us to begin reading here in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with tongues, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others said, mocking, they are full of new wine. Pause right there. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this morning that, that as we look at your word, that God, you would minister to our hearts. Lord, we see in this chapter the evidences of what you are so good at doing in people's lives, and that's bringing radical change, radical transformation. And so, Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be changed and moved even now as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the day that you got saved? The day that you gave your life to Christ? What were the circumstances? What was on your mind? Were you scared? Were you confused? Were you excited? Were you all of the above? I remember the day that I came to Christ like it was yesterday, even though I was only 11 years old, so it was only 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> no, it was actually 47 years ago, but, uh, but I remember it like it was yesterday. And my, my conversion story was actually attached to my dad's because my dad got saved about a year before I did. And just seeing the change that God did in his life really impacted me. But my dad, he was a you know heavy drinker. Um, he was a guy who was just living you know for himself. He wasn't interested really in God. He was a guy who had a really really bad temper, and and uh, he was a hard worker. And um, but he could really get upset easily. But when he gave his heart to Jesus, everything began to change. He treated my mom better. He, he, um, you know, just his. He got angry less, and God was definitely doing a work in his life. But the the thing that really made the impact on me 
happened about six months after he came to Jesus. Because even after my dad got saved, he still continued to drink alcohol. In fact, this was kind of a normal thing as he would come home from church in the afternoon or in the evening and he'd sit in his favorite chair and open up his Bible and he would, you know, have a drink. And so he's got a Bible in one hand, his drink in the other hand. And, and this was exactly what happened on this one particular night. He was reading his Bible. He had a martini in this hand. He took a sip and he thought to himself, man, that tastes good. I can't wait to have another read a little bit more, took another sip, and it was bitter in his mouth. And the Lord spoke to him right then and said, Tony, you don't need this anymore. And I'll never forget this because on that night, and and in our house, we had one refrigerator that was out on our patio that was just full of liquor, full of these, all these cabinets that were full of liquor. And that night, I watched and helped my dad as he poured bottle after bottle after bottle of alcohol down the sink, filling up three 30-gallon trash cans with liquor bottles. And my dad never drank again. And so when that happened, that really made an impact on me. And I was just, you know, thinking, man, God must be real because you're doing something in my dad's life. Well, fast forward a few months later, and um, I, I'm about fourth grade, maybe fifth grade. I'm going to public school, and I come home one day, and my dad says something to me, and I responded with a very smart alecky and dirty response. To my dad. It just popped out of my mouth. And as soon as it did, I was like, no, you know, I just wanted to like pull those words back because I knew, I mean, I was just waiting for him to just lay into me because that would have been the norm. But he stayed really calm. He looked at me and said, have you asked Jesus into your heart yet? And I said, no. And he said, I think you should. <laughs> and I'm thinking, cause you're going to kill me right now. You know, <laughs> And so that night, I mean, I, I went in my room, I, I prayed, and I asked Jesus to come into my life, and, and um, that was a monumental moment in what has been my 47-year journey and walk with Jesus. And there have been many, many more monumental moments that have followed in my you know, walking with the Lord. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, we see this monumental moment that takes place in the life of the early church, in the life of the followers of Jesus. And we noted this last week, that in the book of Acts, we see Jesus is doing something to these followers of his. And he's doing something in these followers of his. And he's going to do something through these followers of his. And that's exactly what we need Jesus to do for us. We need him to do something to us and in us and then through us. If we are going to be the church, if we're going to be his followers living for him at this critical time in the history of our world. Well, today we're looking at verses 5 through 41, and we saw last week that Jesus commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for this coming upon them of the Holy Spirit that he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was going to empower them for service, empower them to follow him. And we saw that happen last week, and we noted that there were these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, these sights and sounds that took place. And today we're going to see what transpired from that outpouring, this radical change 
In fact, that's the title of our message today, Radical Change. This radical change and radical transformation that takes place. And so as we break this down today and go through these verses, there's three things I want us to consider. First of all, I want us to consider the change in the audience, those who are gathered here. Then we're going to also talk about the change that takes place in Peter. And then we're going to focus on the message that actually brought forth this change. We'll start with the audience. We note that this is the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost was one of the three pilgrim feasts there in Israel that every Jewish male was required to go to. And they would come and travel from all these other parts of the Middle East because in the various invasions that took place in Israel, the Jews were dispersed, much in the same way that we saw in our study of Esther where there were Jews living in Persia. Well, the Jews had kind of been dispersed all over the Middle East and in the places where they went to live, they you know, integrated into the culture. They learned the languages of those places. They had children that were born in these different places. But when the feasts of Passover or Pentecost or tabernacles came along, these were the three um, feasts that all the Jewish males and really their families were obligated to come to. These men, as many as could, these families would travel from where they lived in these various places and they would come back to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, which normally has a population of about 30,000 people, on these feast days, it swells to 150, 200,000 people. So here on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the population of, of uh, Jerusalem is packed. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon these 120 followers of Jesus who are in this upper room, we noted last week that one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit coming upon them was there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We see that in verse 2. And we noted last week that Luke talks about that word sound in Luke chapter 21, and he equates it to the roar of the sea during a storm. So all these people are in Jerusalem, And suddenly they hear this roar that's coming from this one house. And it's so loud that people are coming from all over. We read later in the text, there's at least 3,000 people that are gathered outside of this house, this upper room where, where the followers of Jesus are. And as they gather, they suddenly hear the, the disciples in this group of 120 speaking in unknown languages or speaking in language actually actually that they all knew but that the that the people speaking them didn't know and it wasn't gibberish they're actually speaking fluently in these different languages that these the people who gathered outside were recognizing that they were languages from the countries that they had come to and it says that the crowd was confused And we're going to see in our text, the crowd asks three questions. The first question is, how can this be? The second question is, what does this mean? And then we'll see a little bit later, after the preaching of Peter, they're going to ask this question, what must we do? But notice they start with asking, how can this be? Look at verse 7 again. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? They say, what's going on here? 
These guys are Galileans. Now, a couple things with this. Galilee was a part of Israel that was real rural. It was a rural area. It wasn't known for having scholars. There weren't a lot of scholars that came out of uh, Galilee. It was more the working class area. So there weren't any scholars coming out of there. It was sort of Hicksville. And the people in Galilee were a little bit different from all the other people in Israel in the sense that they spoke with an accent, kind of like people from the South. So when they say, you know, they could understand the accent, you know, how is it that these Galileans, we know they're not the sharpest tools in the tool chest. How is it that these Galileans are speaking all of these different language fluently? This doesn't make sense. How can this be, they ask. And then they ask, what does this mean? Because they realize, we see in verse 12, that something was happening here that was connected to God. Because they said, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. The word there is languages, the wonderful works of God. Now, I want to just pause here for just a moment to address something. There are certain Bible teachers that talk about this passage and this idea of the gift of tongues being poured out, that they actually suggest that what was going on here and what the disciples were doing is that they were preaching the gospel here. That was a special gifting from God for this particular moment to proclaim the truth about Jesus. I think that's a wrong interpretation for a couple of reasons. First of all, because Paul, when he talks about and teaches on the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he tells us that when people are speaking in tongues, they're not speaking to men, but they speak to God. It's a private prayer language between you and the Lord. It's, it's vertical in its focus. It's focused towards the Lord. And we see that's what's happening here because what they're saying, it's the language of praise. They're speaking forth, we're told in verse 12, the wonderful works of God. The second reason I don't think they were preaching these you know, sermons in tongues, if that were true, there wouldn't have been a need for Peter to preach the sermon that he does. He just would have needed to give an altar call. They would have jumped right to, okay, we hear this, what could this be, and what must we do? But we're going to see that there's this whole message that Peter needs to preach before they get to that point. So, we see here, though, that as this is happening, there are some who begin to mock. Oh, these guys, what's going on? They're just drunk. They're, sp- they're drunk and speaking fluently in a foreign language. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody who's drunk that could do that. You know, suddenly they just know how to speak a a foreign language fluently. All right. Most people that are drunk can't speak English fluently. So we see here the crowd asks two questions. How can this be? And what does this mean? And then we're going to see their final question that really led to the change at the end of our study. But now let's consider this change that takes place in Peter. And the change that I would say that takes place in Peter, I would describe this way, is it's directed boldness. Directed boldness. You see, Peter has always been bold, but his boldness wasn't always directed. Peter is a guy that we would call a live wire. 
You know, you just never knew what he was going to do and what he was going to say. Remember when the disciples are in a storm, Peter or Jesus comes walking out to them on the sea in the midst of the storm. Remember, Peter? Lord, if that's you, if that's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and come to you walking on water. That is bold, all right? I don't know if any of you would do that, like, you know, I'm going to walk on water right now. But Peter, I mean, he just was bold. He was impetuous. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, come. And he gets out, and he actually walked on water for a little bit until he took his eyes off of Jesus, and then he, you know, began to sink. But Peter, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah, and the disciples are seeing Jesus in an aspect of his glory. And Peter, James, and John are there. And again, Peter, in his boldness, he just has to say something, says, Lord, this is so good for us to be here. Let me build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then God speaks. Peter, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. In other words, Peter, be quiet. Not a time to be talking. But Peter, he was bold in that way. Peter was bold in rebuking Jesus. Remember when Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, you know, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified there. And Peter pulls him aside, Lord, you got to quit talking like this. It's a real downer, you know. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Those are two words you don't want to hear Jesus say to you ever, okay? You're being an instrument of the devil right now, Peter. But that was Peter. He was bold in that way. On the night that Jesus was going to go to the the cross, and he says to his disciples, all of you are going to forsake me tonight. And what does Peter do? Peter stands there and says, Lord, not me. Not me. The rest of these guys, they might forsake you, but Lord, I'm ready to die for you. And he was totally serious. But when the rubber hit the road, when it was really time to make a stand, what happened? Peter folded. Peter caved in. Peter ended up denying the Lord three times around a little fire and some servant girls. And he's like, hey, I don't don't even know the man. But here we see, this is 50 days later. And we see a bold and directed Peter no longer being a coward, but speaking in clarity to a massive crowd of people. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Note this. Peter's no longer cowering in the shadows. No, he's standing. And he's no longer appearing better than the rest of the disciples, but he's standing with them. There's a unity here. He's with the others. And Peter is what Peter is saying here is not going to be his own opinion, but he's declaring the word. This is that which was spoken, he says. And he's going to quote Joel and David. Here's the question. What happened to Peter? What brought about this change? Two things. Number one, Peter saw Jesus risen from the dead. That was first. He saw Jesus die. He saw him buried. And then he saw him come out of the grave. And it changed everything in his heart. 
And this is why that the, the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus is the defining mark of Christianity. It's what separates Christianity from every other faith is that we believe that God came down from heaven in the form of his son and he went to a cross to pay the price for our sins and he was buried in the tomb and three days later he came out of the grave to give us life to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in him. Our leader isn't dead. He's alive. He's living, living. He's risen. You know, I I mentioned I came to faith when I was 11, but I would say I really made my faith my own at 16. It's my 10th grade year of high school. You see, in my 10th grade year of high school, or prior to that, my faith was kind of really connected to my parents, maybe like some of your kids. Oh, I believed. I was sincere in my belief of Jesus. But, but you know, I, I, was, I believed in God mainly because of what he was doing in their lives, how he was changing my dad and how he was, you know, just blessing their, their marriage. But during my 10th grade year, I really made my faith my own because I began to, to look at and question, how do I know this is true? And so I began to study. I began to investigate. I picked up a book by Josh McDowell called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a classic but great book. It's, it's based on the idea of a lawyer who tries to refute the resurrection and ends up getting saved. And in that book, it talks about the reliability of the Bible. It talks about how the resurrection you know, stands against um, you know, all the different ideas that have been put against it that it wasn't true and i saw that everything hinged upon the resurrection because like paul said if jesus didn't rise from the dead then our faith is in vain and that was a turning point for me it was a turning point it was the point where i suddenly made my faith my own and i believed this and said this is going to be the thing that my whole life is based around That Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And he did exactly what he said that he was going to do in dying on the cross for our sins. And he proved who he said he was by rising from the dead. And if you are here today, or you're watching online, and you are not a Christ follower, you have to give an answer to the empty tomb. You know, the Bible says that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And you can bow now, or you can wait and bow later. But if you wait, it's going to be too late. So it's the empty tomb that we have to deal with. And I remember meeting a while back with a guy and his wife. She was a believer, and he wasn't. And I asked him, I said, well, how come you don't believe in Jesus? He says, I don't know. I just don't. I just don't buy into this whole Jesus thing. And I asked him, I said, so basically what you're telling me is you just have a hunch that this isn't true, that you're basing your eternal destiny on a hunch. And he said, well, I guess I am. So I started talking to him about the reliability of the Bible. I started talking to him about how the Bible holds up to textual criticism. That's where they take ancient documents and they put them through a test for their authenticity and how the Bible stands up as a document, as a manuscript, a hundred times better than any of the works of Shakespeare, which was written a lot 
longer after the Bible came into being. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible, the, the authenticity of the Bible when it's put up to textual criticism. I started talking to him about the, res, the reality of the resurrection and how countless lawyers have tried to disprove it. I talked to him about Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was one of the principal founders of the Harvard Law School, which is the most prestigious of law schools in the world today or in this country. And his famous three-volume work, A Trustee on Law of Evidence, is still considered to be one of the greatest single authorities on that subject in the entire literature of legal procedure, Greenleaf put the facts and testimonies to the test to see if the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead would help in a court of law, and this was his conclusion. There is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Or J. Warner Wallace, a cold case homicide detective, here in L.A., here in Southern California. He was an atheist, and he decided to try and use the techniques that he would use in solving a cold case to refute the resurrection of Jesus. He spent eight months investigating the death and resurrection of Jesus like the many cold cases he had solved over the years, and his conclusion was this, the resurrection of Jesus was irrefutably true. He became a believer. Today, he travels the country giving talks and giving seminars and using his cold case experience and techniques to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I was talking to this guy about some of these things. And then, and then I said to him, I said, you know what? Here's the thing. Okay, you're basing everything on a hunch. And I said, I mean, don't, no disrespect, but this is what the Bible says. That if you are wrong, you are going to spend eternity in hell. That you are going to spend eternity in this place of utter torment, being separated from a God who loves you and wants a relationship with you. And because of that, he sent his only son to leave heaven and come to this earth to die on the cross and to pay the price for your sins. And then three days later, rise again from the dead And I said, are you willing to risk everything on a hunch? I said, you know, and again, I said, I mean, no disrespect, but to me, if you are, if you're, if you're willing to risk everything and not even investigate the evidence, I I said, I think that's really stupid. (laughs) And I said, you know what? I have investigated the evidence and I said, you know, I'm convinced And I said, and even if, let's just say that I end up being wrong, which I'm 100% sure I'm not, but even if I'm wrong, what have I lost? I've lost a lot of heartache from living my life for myself. That's all I've lost in following after Jesus. And I told him, I said, you know, you're going to have to answer one day to this this question, what did you do with my son? That's what God's going to ask. And if you're here today, you're watching online, you don't know Jesus, that's the question that he is going to ask you as well. What did you do with my son? So the first change we see in Peter is because of the resurrection of Jesus. The second change is because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And now as the Holy Spirit comes upon him, his boldness is directed by the Holy Spirit. And it's not just Peter standing up and stating stupid things like, Lord, let me build three tabernacles. Or Jesus, don't talk like that. Don't talk about the crucifixion. Or boastful things like, I'll never deny you, although the rest of these other guys will. Now Peter is an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And Peter's life reminds us of two very important truths. I want you to hear this. One is that our failures don't have to define us. Peter made a lot of mistakes. Peter failed big time, but his failures were not going to define him. And the second thing that Peter's life teaches us is that anyone can be used in a big time way by Jesus. Peter's not a scholar. He's not a seminary student. He's not seminary trained. He just spent time with Jesus, took in the words of Jesus. He's a man whose life was captured by Jesus, so much so that when the crowds were leaving Jesus, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, will the rest of you guys leave me too? What did Peter say? He says, Lord, where would we go? Where would we go? For in you are the words of eternal life. He was a man who was captured by the life of Jesus, and he was a man who was transformed by the resurrection of Jesus and by being filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And that can happen to any of us and all of us. So there was a remarkable change in Peter. He stands up before this mob, and he preaches a really impactful sermon. And there's no holding back. And I want you to note this. Because I find this interesting. This is the first, first of 19 sermons in the book of Acts. 19 sermons in 28 chapters. Why? Because the Lord is wanting us to know that the message of the gospel is front and center in this story of the move of the Holy Spirit impacting change upon the world. That's why Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. And again, if you're here today or watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ or your life you isn't surrendered to him, it's, it's the gospel that can transform you. So let's look at now this sermon that brought forth change. There's four things I want us to note about this sermon. The first is that it was biblical. Notice he says there in verse 16, this is what? This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And as I said, he's going to give, he's going to quote Joel, he's going to quote David. In other words, Peter's not giving his opinion here. He's quoting the word of God. His sermon was attached to the word of God. That he had a knowledge as a being brought up in Jewish culture of Old Testament scriptures. And they're coming to light now. Number two, it was prophetic. Notice he says, but this is what, verse 16, what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Notice here, Peter's defining for us the last days. Peter is addressing this cultural moment and tying it into what Joel said would happen in the last days. But here's the question. When did the last days start? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer to that question. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, God, 
who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. Writer Hebrews is telling us the last days started when Jesus showed up, when God was speaking through his Son, Jesus. And Joel, he spoke about this in the very same chapter, one verse before, in verse Joel, verse 227. He talked about the day the Messiah would come. He said, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I, the Lord, I am the Lord, your God. Key phrase, I'm in the midst. You're going to know. It's the last days when, when I show up and I'm in the midst. And that is so significant in light of what John would write in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1 when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, He was in our midst talking about when God became a man in the person of Jesus. And he says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the last days began when Jesus showed up. But in the very next verse there in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Joel tells us something else that would happen in the last days. And this is what Peter is going to quote from here when he speaks of that, that in the last days God would pour out his spirit. And he says there, notice, that, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18. And on the, my maidservants and, and my men servants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they, who? The men servants and maidservants shall prophesy. In the last days, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. The word pour out literally means to flow out, to gush forth, to cause something to be released in quantity. That's what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. On all flesh means without distinction. And here's the significance of that. In the Old Testament, God only poured out his spirit on special people like priests and prophets and kings and some judges. And it was always temporary. That's why David would pray, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because he had experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon his life. So the Holy Spirit was only poured out on special people for a special reason, for a, and it was always temporary to meet a temporary need. But Joel says here in the last days, there's a day coming when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. In other words, anyone believing in Jesus. Anyone who's seeking to live their lives dependent upon Jesus. So Peter's pointing out that Peter's, his sermon here was prophetic in that he was pointing to what Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. This is exactly what we're seeking to do on our prophecy updates that we are having on Wednesday nights. We just had one back in September the 21st. And in that, we talked about how Jesus said in the last days, the last days would be like the days of Lot and like the days of Noah. And we talked about what were the defining marks of, of those days, of the days of Lot and the days of Noah. Well, the defining mark was defiance against God. 
And we are living in a time and an age right now where universally the defining mark of of our culture is becoming more and more a defiance against God. And there in Matthew 24, Jesus said that defiance against God would look like this. And this was our, our, our focus on that prophecy update, that it would create a culture of disdain. We live in a cancel culture right now. Jesus said people would turn against one another. It would create a culture of deception that in the last days, Paul said, many would be departing from the faith. And number three, a culture of distortion. And we are distorting right now in our world God's view of life and God's view of marriage and God's view of sexuality and now God's view of gender. And we see that's what's happening. If you missed our prophecy update, I encourage you to go online and watch it. But this is what Peter's doing. He's attaching this cultural moment happening right there to what it said prophetically in the Bible. Let's get back to a sermon. Peter said that this would be happening in the last days. This this was the beginning of the last days. But also notice verse 19 and 20. He talks about what would be happening at the end of the last days. He said, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here's what's interesting when you're looking at Bible prophecy. There's always a now and not yet aspect to it, or there's oftentimes a now and not yet aspect to it. The now aspect is verses 16 through 18. The Holy Spirit's being poured out. The not yet is what he says here in verses 19 through 20 because he's describing what the Bible says will happen in the tribulation time leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter's sermon here was prophetic in the sense that he was defining the days in which he was living. Number three, he preached Jesus very clearly. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, meaning publicly endorsed by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That last phrase, circle it. When he says that you know, it means that that you could tell with your senses that you had sensual perception that what was going on with Jesus, that it was from God. And what he's saying here is, come on, guys, let's be honest. There, There was no shadow of a doubt that Jesus, that God was behind him, and so you have no excuse. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So we see here in his preaching about Jesus, he preaches the cross. He brings him right to the crucifixion and saying, and you guys, you crucified. He was taken by lawless hands and you've crucified him. You put him to death. But he also says, but that was according to the predetermined plan of God. It was all part of God's plan to pay the price for the sins of the world. But he also notices he preaches the resurrection. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He's not possible, meaning the grave had no power over Jesus because he was God in human flesh. And then Peter's going to give, in verses 25 through 35, three evidences in his sermon to the resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection is central. 
The first will be David's tomb. He's going to quote here from Psalm 16. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's a key word, corruption. The idea is decompose. You're not going to allow my flesh flesh to decompose. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, in the Old Testament, the readers attributed Psalm 16 to David, that David was speaking here about himself. But Peter's pointing out here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this was messianic, that he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. And he's going to ask an important question. Peter is. And the question is this, was David talking about himself? Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David didn't rise from the dead. David's body did see corruption. He did decompose. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. And he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The body of Jesus never began to decompose, because he rose again from the dead. So first of all, he points to the tomb of David as an evidence for the resurrection, in quoting Psalm 16. The second, he points to the witnesses, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. In other words, Hey, we saw him alive. There's 120 of us right here. We all saw him living. We saw him alive. We hung out with him. And you guys know in a court of law, eyewitness testimony is so vital and powerful, especially when there's a lot of them all saying the same thing. That's that's his point here. The third thing he points to is the ascension. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 110, which we looked at this summer in our Summer in the Psalm series. He's quoting here, The Lord said to my Lord, God said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God never said that to David, but he says that to Jesus. So his point is, is that Jesus rose and ascended and is sitting at the right hand of God. And then he comes to his conclusion. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, for certain is the idea, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When he says, let, let, let it be known assuredly or for certain, it means firm and steady like an immovable anchor. And that's what he wants our faith to be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is an immovable anchor. The writer of Hebrews would say that this hope we have in the resurrection is an anchor for our souls in the midst of any storm that life might throw at us. 
So this is Peter's sermon that, that brought forth the change. And this brings us back to the final change that happens in the audience. Their final question, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were cut. means they were convicted. What shall we do? Our hearts are pierced. What do we need to do? And if you're here today, and again, you're not a follower of Jesus, you have to respond to this question. There's an empty tomb. What are you going to do about it? Peter gives us the answer. Look at verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Here's the fourth thing we see about Peter's message as he preached repentance. The word repent means to have a change of mind, that results in a change of heart, that results in a change of direction. They needed to have a change of mind about who Jesus was, that he wasn't just some prophet, but that he was God in human flesh, that he had risen from the dead, and that they needed to follow him. You see, you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Those are the only two choices. But notice what it says in verse 22. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repentance is turning from our sin and turning to Jesus and calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what saves us. Peter also mentions here baptism because baptism is the response to putting my faith in Jesus, that it's the outward declaration that, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And this was a radical idea because Jews didn't get baptized. Only Gentiles got baptized in converting to Judaism. So when Peter says you need to repent and be baptized, it's like saying, hey, you're stepping out of this and putting your faith and your trust and you're going on record publicly that you are all about Jesus. And notice the radical thing that happens. Verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word and were baptized, that day there were about 3,000 souls that were added to him. Added to them. Isn't that amazing? What a change. What a radical change. That these people go from going, How can this be? And what does this mean? To what do I need to do? I need to repent. I need to have a change of mind, and I need to embrace Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that's what you need to do as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you sent your son to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. And then he rose again, proving that he was exactly who he claimed to be. And Lord, I pray right now for anybody here in this room or anybody watching online that hasn't given their heart to you. And you're asking them today, what are you going to do with my son? Lord, I pray that they would would turn to you today. Lord, I pray for anybody here who has maybe at one time professed you, but they've walked away and they've been living for themselves. And they've been living in rebellion against you. 
And today you're calling them to come back home. God, I pray today that they would open up their hearts. And if you're here today and you're, or you're watching online and, and you want to get right with God, you want to open up your heart to Jesus. You want to be a follower of Jesus. You, you want to be, you know, you're a prodigal and you want to come back home and say, Jesus, it, it, it's about you. I want you just in the quietness of your heart to repeat this prayer after me. Just say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. And I believe that you are the Lord. I'm calling upon you today to save me, to cleanse me, to do a work in my life. From this day forward, I want to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you, Jesus.